I have in my hand the powerful Word of God. It can change lives, heal broken hearts, and save man's soul. And here's our prayer. Lord Jesus, today, speak to me. In Jesus' name, amen. Give a high five, pound your neighbor, whatever feels good there. Turn to your neighbor and say, Jesus loves you. Turn back to him and say, and so do I. <laughs> oh, mercy. <clears throat> Philosopher Emile Callier was born in a small French village near the end of the 19th century. His early education was committed to naturalism, leaving no room for God or supernatural intervention in the affairs of humanity. His philosophical views of a no-God universe came crashing hard when he was on the front line experiencing as a young soldier at 20, World War I. He kept a journal, and one of his entries in that journal revealed this struggle. It said, What use the ill-kept ancient type of sophistry in the philosophic banter of the seminar when your own buddy at the time speaking to you of his mother dies in front of you, a bullet in his chest? Was there a meaning to it at all? A person can endure anything if only it appears meaningful. I too felt, not with my reason, but with my whole being, that I was naked and war or no war, destined to perish miserably when the hour came. Well, one night, a bullet did find Callier. An American field ambulance crew saved his life, and after nine months in the hospital was discharged and resumed his graduate studies, but the books no longer seemed like the same books. His motivation seemed to fade. There was something missing, and it nagged at him, at his mind, and at his soul. He continued to write, During long night, watches in the foxholes I had in a strange way been longing I must say it however unusual it may sound for a book that would understand me but I knew of no such book now I would in secret prepare one of my own for my own private use and so as I went on reading for my courses I would file passages that would speak to my condition and then carefully copy them in a leather bound pocket book I would always carry them with me. The quotations which I numbered in red ink for easier reference would lead me, as it were, from here and from fear and anguish through a variety of intervening stages to supreme utterances of release and jubilation. But when he reviewed his com compilation, he realized that it really didn't work. It held no power for him because it was of his own writing and his own making. And as it would happen on that very day, Callier's wife had come in 
to a possession of a Bible in a very unusual way. She had stumbled across a a Huguenot chapel and intrigued by it, had gone in and had been given a Bible by an elderly pastor. And now Emil had always been adamant about religion, that it was taboo in his home, and at the age of 23 had never seen a Bible. But at the end of that disappointing day, when she apologetically tried to explain how she had providentially picked up a copy of the Bible, he was eager to see it. And he describes then what happened, and I read on. I literally grabbed the book and rushed to my study with it. I opened it and chanced upon the Beatitudes. I read and read and read, and now aloud with an indescribable warmth surging within, I could not find words to express my awe and wonder. And suddenly the realization dawned upon me, this was the book that would understand me. I needed it so much, yet unaware I had attempted to write my own, yet in vain. I continued to read deeply into the night, mostly from the Gospels, and lo and behold, as I looked through them, the, the one of them that uh, they spoke, the one who spoke and acted in them, became alive in me. And while it seemed absurd to speak of a book understanding a man, this could be said of the Bible because its pages were animated by the presence of the living God and the power of His mighty acts. And to this God I prayed that night, and the God who answered was the same God of whom it was spoken in the book. Amen. And amen. And those of us here who have a saving relationship with Christ understand exactly what Emile Callier means. We are a people of this book. We know God through this book. We meet Christ in this book. We see the cross in this book. Our faith and love are kindled by the glorious truths of this book. We have tasted the divine majesty of the Word and are persuaded that this book is God's inspired and infallible written revelation. This book is truth. This book will lead you this book will never let you down. And so we move on to the second installment of our series that we began last week, Opening Your Trauma Toolbox. And we take a look inside to see what we can find and what tools are there for us. I'm going to share with you six non-negotiable bedrock truths upon which you can build your life. And these six truths form the pillars upon which our life will stand. If you have them firmly in place, the inevitable storms that will blast against the walls and rattle the windows of your life will not move you. You will endure. You will stand strong. 
However, you omit any of these six and you will be like the foolish man in Jesus' parable who built his house upon a foundation of sand. And when the winds came and the waters rose, great was its destruction. Last week we nailed down the first of these pillars, the foundational truth that God is God. And what you and I need when the bottom drops out is a big God who is strong enough, wise enough, and caring enough to wade into it with me. To intervene with grace that keeps me going and peace that calms my heart. I love optimism, don't you? Watching the OSU-Texas game yesterday. Boy, so close. Yet so very far. But what I got out of that game more than anything was the interview Stacy Dales had with T. Boone Pickens before the game. Did any of you catch that? And she said, I understand because you've lost so much money that we're not gonna, you're not going to be able to finish the uh, complex over in OSU. And he said, oh, Stacy, he said, we're still on track. He said, I've lost, I lost a lot of money. He said, well, I've lost it before. He said, but Monday morning, I'm going to be making an announcement about another gift I'm going to be giving to the college. I love optimism, don't you? I love optimism. Corey called me a couple weeks ago. He said, Dad, my boss is all over me. My boss is chewing me out. He's sending me emails. Why aren't we productive? Why aren't we producing? I said, son, I'll bet you nine times out of ten, somebody close to him is chewing on him who lost a whole lot of money. And sure enough, come to find out, one of the boys up the line lost about a million dollars in one day. Ah! It's just money. Amen? If you're T. Boone, it was a billion dollars with a B in it. And you know what he said to Stacey Dales? Ah, it's just money. Lost it before. I can make it again. That's optimism, isn't it? You and I live in an optimistic time. Because this book says, I'm coming back to get you. This book says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. This book says, come to me and I will give you rest. This book says, Believe in me and you'll be saved. This book says that heaven is prepared for those who love Him. So take a deep breath, folks, and just relax. November 5th cannot come quick enough. Amen. Because our King is still on the throne. Our King will lead us. Render unto Caesars what is Caesar, Jesus said. Trust me, Caesar will need a lot of rendering. But he says, render unto God what is God's. And what is God's, by the way? Ah, you're learning well, you little grasshoppers. That's right. Everything is His, including you. If you've named Him as your Savior... He's your, he, he owns you. Amen? Amen and amen. But not only is God a big God, and God is God, secondly, and the second thing I want to talk to you about this morning, is that we need, we need to know that He's God. Secondly, we need to know that His Word is in us. His Word is in us. The Bible is the best-selling book in the history of the world. Since its first commercial printing in 1455 on the Gutenberg Press, 
more than six billion, with a B, copies of the Bible or parts of the Bible have been distributed worldwide. In our own country, 86%, and that's today, in our own country today, 86% of the households own or have a Bible. Most of you and most of us in our homes have multiple Bibles. Some never get read. Most sit on the shelf or on the coffee table and look good. Especially those coffee table kind. Because they're so big. And it's so obvious when you come in the door that you're a Christian. How do I know that? Because you've got this big old Bible on your coffee table. Right? And usually it's padded and has a picture of Jesus on it. And it's gold running around the edge. I know you spend a lot of money for that Bible. And it's usually in King James translation. Which means you never, ever read it. Because if you venture in there, you're going... Oh, too deep, can't get it, can't comprehend. Uh, uh, uh. So we don't. It's a mystery and we leave it on the table because we're afraid of the powerful words in it that I can't understand. Eighty-six percent. Go to Amazon.com and you type in Bible in the search engine. And you will find 3,730 Bibles. They vary in color, in size, in version, in quality. 3,730. Whoa, that's a lot of Bibles, folks. There is simply no book like it in publishing history. And yet every statistical report out there is saying the same thing. Only 16% of Americans say they read the Bible every day. 21% say they read it weekly. 12% say they read the Bible monthly. 10% say less than monthly. 41% say they rarely or never crack open their copy of God's Word. But boy, I've got one. Young people. I'm going to talk to young people for a minute. If you went to math class and your teacher is going to teach you math, they're going to ask you where your math book is, correct? And if you don't have it, what do they do? They get mad at you. They call you stupid, you ignorant child. Your parents are paying tax dollars for you to be at this school and you don't carry your textbook. No, they don't say those things. They may think them, but they don't say it. You usually say, do I need my book today? And you'll go get your book. You know where it is, right? You know exactly where it is because there's days when you're in that book and you need that book. Folks, you need this book every day. Are you spending any time here? Spending some time here. <clears throat> I'll tell you what, you can quote statistics for me in sports. You can tell me the latest Dancing with Stars team that's making it to the final. You can tell me what soap opera deal's going on. You can tell me who's winning the great race or whatever that thing's called. Run all over the world chasing after a little piece of paper that says, they're challenged today. 
You can tell me. You can tell me which one of the desperate housewives is really desperate. But can you tell me who Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are? Cindy used to pull a deal on our boys when they were growing up, and they would, oh, they could quote, they could quote lines from Chris Farley, Family Guy. I mean, do the voice inflections. Woo. Cindy said, all right, I need a verse of Scripture out of you. For every one of those lines you can quote, we need a verse of Scripture. Well, they quit telling us the lines from their shows, <clears throat> but they know them. They know them. Occasionally, we would, we would bait them, and we would say something about that. Boy, they would just quote something. Yeah. And then they'd catch it themselves, and then they'd quote a quick verse of Scripture, one they'd already shared with us, of course. John 6, 35. Jesus wept. All right, there it is. <clears throat> Indelibly put upon his heart and upon his soul. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 19. Psalm 19. We're going to begin at verse 7. And I hope the things that we learn from these passages, verses 7 through 11, from David, will change us in how we view the Word of God. Let's begin at verse 7. The instruction of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is trustworthy, making the inexperienced wise. The precepts of the Lord are right making the heart glad. The commandment of the Lord is radiant, making the eyes light up. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are reliable and altogether righteous. They are more desirable than gold, than an abundance of pure gold, and sweeter than honey than honey dripping from the comb. Verse 11, In addition, your servant is warned by them. There is great reward in keeping them. David almost trips over himself as he pours out descriptive phrases describing God's holy word. In verse 7, he calls it the instruction of the Lord and the testimony of the Lord. In verse 8, God's word is described as the precepts of the Lord and the commandment of the Lord. In verse 9, David adds the fear of the Lord and the precepts of the Lord to his list. Slow that down a little and you'll see that David is just, he isn't just using poetic repetition. He's telling us about the place the Word holds in his life. Has high value to him. Verbs that he uses in these verses cause me to ask you some questions. Do you want your soul revived? Yes or no? Do you want your soul revived? Yes or no? Do you want to grow in wisdom? Do you want a happy heart and a discerning mind? Do you want to be connected to something that will live forever? Something that you can always count on to be completely true and thoroughly right? Then I will commend this book to you. The book that knows you. David uses nouns in these passages. And they're descriptive nouns. The first one in verse 7 is instruction. 
Literally in the Hebrew, that word means instructions or directions for how to reach a goal. It is a very comprehensive word for God's will in your life. You find it by this book. You don't spend any time here, then you wonder why you struggle. You don't spend any time here, and you wonder why when the storms of life come, that you don't have any foundation to stand on. Then you see the word testimony. It's a word from the legal or judicial area. And it actually pictures God Himself as a witness who verifies the truth. 1 John 5 and verse 9 says, If we accept the testimony of men, God's testimony is greater because it is God's testimony that He has given about His Son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life and this life is in His Son. You won't have eternal life. You won't have a forever life without a relationship and connection to Jesus Christ. Numbers 23, 19 reminds us that God is not a man, a man who lies or a son of man who changes His mind. Does He speak and not act or promise and not fulfill what He says He will do? Get ready. If He says, I'm going to whoop you, you might as well bend over now. Because He's going to whoop you. How many times when we were growing up, adults and young people, how many times have you begged your way out of a whooping? Any of you know what I'm talking about when I say whooping? i got to raise this arm because I can't get this one up as high as <laughs> I am out of the sling. Thank God for freedom. All right? You know what it means to have a whooping? How many of you, a few of you raised your hand and said, you talked your way out of it. Every time. Old Jim went into sales early in life, didn't he? Corey was master at getting out of getting out of trouble. He was a master at it. Jeff and Mark, we still had the fear of God in there. Corey learned how. Boy, he'd get those eyes at his mama. He'd get some tears rolling down here. And that was it. Boy, that was it. She'd hand me the paddle and say, you beat him. And I couldn't catch him then, so it was over. No, I didn't have it. Boy, I tell you, his testimony is found in the Word. Look in verse 8. David adds the words precepts and commandment to this his picture of the Word of God. Precepts emphasize the care and attention and oversight that, uh, that God flows through His Word to the person who studies it. God meets us in His Word. It's Him that's speaking. When you read the Bible, don't be bored and don't be downtrodden. Realize that's God saying something to you. God is speaking to you. The God of the universe, the God of creation is speaking to you. Isaiah 55, 10, 11, God says, For just as rain and snow fall from heaven and do not return there without saturating the earth and making it germinate and sprout and providing seed to sow and food to eat, so my word that comes from my mouth will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish what I please and will prosper in what I send it to do. You see, God's word... It lives in us. God's Word should be active in us. And as he, we consume it, we then give it away. And as we give it away, people respond and they find salvation. Amen? Hallelujah? <gasps> Let's try that. On three. On three. One, two, three. <gasps> oh, throw your hands up. Come on now. One, two, three. <gasps> there you go. Some of you just now woke up. What are they doing up there? <laughs> because there's no other book. There's no other book like the Bible in which the author actually works his purposes 
in and through His words. Commandment emphasizes the authority of God in what He says. Binding us to obedience. Moses understood that. In Deuteronomy 30, he says this, See, today I have set before you life and prosperity, death and adversity. For I am commanding you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in His ways, to keep His commandments, statutes and ordinances, so that you may live and multiply. And the Lord your God may bless you in the land you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away and you do not listen, I tell you today that you will certainly perish. If you're not listening to this, you're lost. Jesus is exclusive. He said, there is no way to get to heaven except through me. That is Jesus. You cannot get to heaven by, by spouting off mantras. You cannot get to heaven by believing that you're going to go. You can't get to heaven by being good enough. You can't get to heaven by paying your way. You can't get to heaven by just hoping that it happens. You just can't do it. There's only one way to heaven. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. You can't do it by religion. You can't do it by any other way but through Jesus. It's the only way. Two more nouns he uses. Fear of the Lord and precepts. How am I to respond? Mark 12.30 says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And included in this wholehearted love for God is a saving trust in Christ, the Son of God, who sets sinners like you and me right with God forever. And the Word of God should strike fear in us. The Word of God should get us shaken up. In Hebrews chapter 4, we find these words. The Word of God is living and effective and sharper than any two-edged sword, penetrating as far as to divide soul, spirit, joints, and marrow. It's a judge of the thoughts and intents of the heart. No creature is hidden from Him, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. There will be a day when we've got to stand before the judgment throne of God and He will call into account everything that we've done. I don't want to be there. I don't want to be there. Because He's going to expose me for the phony that I am. He's going to expose me for the liar that I've been. He's going to expose me for the unrepentant, undisciplined person that I perceive that I am. And the reality of who I am. And then the perception you don't see. But guess what? As soon as He gets through with me, you're next. You're next. And if you and I don't have Jesus standing with us, we will be lost. We will be lost. Every week, every week we gather to study the Word of God. It's a book that's roughly 2,000 years old. Now I want you to try to find a 2,000-year-old book on psychology or science or human relationships, if you can find them, and see if they carry as much influence as this one. Why does the world want to get rid of this book? Because it will change your life. It will change your soul. It will get you ready for heaven. 
and puts you in a position of salvation. And David uses adjectives to tell us that it is perfect, trustworthy, right, and radiant. It is pure and reliable. More desirable than gold, he says. Than an abundance of pure gold, sweeter than honey. The honey dripping from a comb, verse 11 says, God's Word, in God's Word we are warned and there is great reward in keeping His Word. I want to tell you a story about a young boy named Nard and the power of the living Word. And I, I want to quote from an article that he wrote. In March of 1956, when I was about six, a tall, pale, white man stumbled into my home village of uh, Dibagat in the northern jungles of the Philippine islands of Luzon. The man didn't speak our language, so the, our elders asked him the best they knew how. What are you here for? I've come to learn your language. I'd like to write it down and then give you God's Word in your language. Who is your God? The elders asked. He's the God of heaven and earth, the man answered. He's the creator of the universe. He created you too. Is He powerful? The elders probed. More powerful than the spirits that are controlled, that, that have controlled our lives from the beginning of time. Is He more powerful than our ancestors, the headhunters? Yes, He's more powerful. Hopeful, we started teaching this man, Dick Rowe, our language. Maybe his God could free us from the spirits. When I was about 13, Dick had to return to the United States to raise support for his ministry. But before he went back, he translated the Gospel of Mark and gave me a copy. And while he was gone, I started, Nard says he started reading the Bible for the first time. He began with the Easter story. He's sitting on top of a rock. He read the Gospel of Mark in his heart language. It felt like I was actually there, seeing the characters. But the further I read, he said, the more distressed I felt. A mob of people came to get Jesus out of the Garden of Gethsemane. What did he do wrong? I read as fast as I could. They accused him of all kinds of false things. They mocked him. They spit on him. They beat him. They took him before Pilate. And then the scourge and the crown of the thorn. It was excruciating to read that they forced him to carry a wooden cross. And then they nailed it to, nailed him to it. Deep in my heart, a hatred for God, Nard says, swelled. I shook my fist and I shouted, I hate you, God, for being so powerless. Why should I believe in a powerless God like you? And with all my strength, I threw the Gospel of Mark down to the rocks and I started walking home. I couldn't understand why God wouldn't protect His own Son our headhunters defended us to the death. And because of them, no one could touch us. I wanted a God like that. Someone who would protect me from the spirits that demanded we sacrifice our cows, chickens, pigs, and dogs. This God didn't even save His own Son. Suddenly, God reached down into my heart, Nard says. And he said, Nard, don't you understand? I heard him say that. That's how much I love you. I gave my son on your behalf. And for the first time, I understood grace. I understood how much God loved me. God, if you love me that much, Nard prayed, I want to give you my life, my heart. It's all you. I went back and picked up my gospel, brushed it off and sat back on that rock to see what happened next. It was an incredible moment as I read that Jesus rose from the grave on the third day. 
Nobody in all of Dibagat, nobody from among the Iznag people had ever risen from the grave. That story changed my life. And it can change your life too. And that story is right here. And that story is still alive. And that story is still real. You can read it. And the living God will come alive in you. Continue to reject it. And the consequences you will face will be great. Father, we ask you this morning to move among us. I ask you this morning, Father, to touch the hearts and lives of your people in this room. Father, I know there's somebody here today that needs to understand and needs to come to you in a first-time saving way. They need to continue to get reacquainted with you and reattached to your spirit. And so, Father, I ask, I earnestly ask that you will move in those hearts today. I believe there's somebody in this room today that just is carrying such a burden and they're trying to do it under their own strength. God, I pray you'll lift that burden. You'll reach into their heart and give them the courage to stand up and say, enough's enough, Satan. Get away from me. And God, whatever it is that they're struggling with in their life, your word can penetrate. Your word can handle. God, we find a relationship with you in your word we find salvation in you in your word and when you give us your word you mean business we can bank on it so father whatever's moving in someone's heart today would you give them the courage to respond in jesus name we pray